Welcome back to Three Decades of Tragedy, a history of the Thirty Years' War. So last time, we talked about the Battle of Brattenfeld and the disastrous defeat of the Catholics, slash great victory of Gustavus. It was certainly a spectacular defeat and shit to the course of the war, along with becoming one of the most iconic battles of this entire war for most people. But we stopped before the aftermath, which we will get to now. With the victory at Brattenfeld, the Protestant cause was bolstered. Many of the more cautious Protestants threw their caution away, much more willing to join up with the Swedish king. He became seen as new Joshua by the middle of 1632. Militancy began to rot. Militancy began to increase in the face of the rising Swedes, but it wasn't all good for him. Many were disappointed. Many were disappointed that he didn't try to use the battle to negotiate peace. Some saying it was their pagan ancestry to blame. Because, as I've said before, many of them wanted to get military victory to bolster their negotiation ability with the emperor. But the Swedes showed no sign of that. Another factor was that. Others saw him marching into southern Germany as a sign he would cross the Alps and raise Rome, as the Swedes had him using the Gothic heritage they possessed to make them an equal to any other European empire. For example, at Gustavus's coronation, he dressed as a Goth. By Goth, I mean the historical group that would become one of the major barbarian groups that plagued Rome and burned the city down in 410. Well, not burned the city down, but they raised it, they looted pillaged it. It was a famous event. Generally, it's one of those points people argue is this is the fall of the Western Roman Empire, which is a whole nother debate, but not one for the scope of this podcast. Some of the propaganda claimed that Sweden was founded by Noah's grandson after the flood, which is definitely not the case. But it's an interesting founding myth, nonetheless, especially for a religious people. Some even suggested he was the next Alexander, wanting more than just German liberation and making a new empire in Europe. Victory certainly made him seem bigger. It definitely contrasted with his goals once you sort of know how he's thought and how I described him before which was more focused on Swedish power more than anything. He wasn't the great uniter, wanted to bring all of Protestantism together sort of thing. He just wanted to enhance Swedish power and didn't really have any goals to take the entire HRE, for example. In the face of this defeat, Tilly retreated westward, moving through Westphalia and Franconia to join up with 40,000 reinforcements. He also had 20,000 in Silesia, with more trickling in. With these numbers, Gustavus could not afford to keep chasing him, exhausting his army in the process. He also couldn't push into Austria, which limited him. He also had to do with issues of many places in Protestant Germany still weren't necessarily his ally or friend. Many of them still support the emperor, especially if you got closer to Upper Austria. So instead of doing either of those routes, going after Tilly or the Austrians, he swung towards Thuringia, trying to get as much land as he could before the winter set in, which was a rough time for any army. This would allow him to get Wilhelm of Hessen Castle in Württemberg to join his alliance, along with many other southern Germans. And fortunately for him, he faced light opposition. Würzburg, the capital of a bishopric of the same name, fell by October 15th, and they had even tried to plead for mercy when the seizure was happening, but they were responded to with cries of Magdeburg Quarter during the assault, which meant no quarter, and Magdeburg still rippled among the Protestants. As I described earlier, it had a bad effect on the Catholics. Mercy was not on the mind of some Protestants after that. After a brief period of rest, the Swedes charged down the main river, 
capturing Frankfurt and Mainz by December 23rd, and securing the majority of the Lower Palatinate right of the Rhine over the next two weeks, with a smaller army securing Mecklenburg before crossing into the lands of the Gulefs, which were a northern German family, which were covered in the Danish Wars and the like. So Gustavus, not being able to pursue Tilly and that army, made good use of his time to secure the land of Germany, granting him a much more secure position from a military standpoint, at least on the surface. Momentum was clearly on his side, and he made good use of it. The Catholics at this point were trying to reorganize and strategize, with Gustavus suddenly being a much bigger threat to them. With the military situation stabilized for now, it's a good time to talk about some diplomatic and big-picture stuff. There were four elements of Sweden's presence in the war. Allies, the Baltic Bridgehead, strategic bases in Germany, and German collaborators. Which is a lot, but today I'm just going to focus on allies for now, which is not insignificant. Gustavus, as a doctrine, commanded absolute control over his allies, although in practice he couldn't always ensure that. He was more of a military dictator than sort of ruling by diplomacy, but the problem is the 17th century did not have communication technology that we have today, so trying to control land people over a large space meant he had to rely on allies to follow his commands, but that wasn't always reliable. The Saxons, despite the performance at Breitenfeld, were still a potent force, being able to gather around 24,000 men by 1632. Those were then backed up by 13,000 men from Brandenburg and a few thousand cavalry from exiled Bohemians and Moravians. Arnim, who was an officer I mentioned way earlier in the podcast on the Danish War, was one of the marshals of the Saxons, advanced into Bohemia and Prague, compelling Ferdinand to take 18,000 troops from Tilly to short the defenses of Upper Austria, which made the advance of the Swedes easier. The Saxons were being aggressive to try to get Ferdinand to the negotiating table, as peace from a weak position would piss off other Protestants, so he had to have force to make sure he had a better position, and even a victory or two would be good. This would make any concessions they made be seen as magnanimous, although that was not the view they showed the public when he was actually doing all this. The Swedes did view his appointment suspiciously, as Arnhem was sending apologies and communications to Wallenstein. For example, when he raided one of Wallenstein's properties, he sent an apology of, sorry, it's nothing personal, that sort of thing. Arnhem in general seemed to keep contact with a lot of various people in the Bohemian area and others in the Empire, which was both Protestants and Catholics, which made it hard to determine what his intentions were, because him, along with many other leaders in the war, would send letters back and forth with each other, and, you know, they'd maybe apologize or be friendly, so it made it hard to fully know what intentions were real, did they really mean that, or was they faking it for dropping the guard, etc., Wallenstein was not helping the Imperials at this time, generally not giving them supplies and such. Some were saying he was doing it to sabotage the war effort because he was mad about his dismissal until he's taking over, which I can understand, but we don't know because we have no documentation on his feelings on this. Johann George and Arnhem were even contemplating offering to let him keep his lands and even crown him the King of Bohemia if he would support the Protestant cause. Because if they can take a commander from the Imperials like Wallenstein, it would be a major blow to them. There was no response to that, but Wallenstein hoped to open negotiations with Saxony, as Sweden was refusing to budge and not negotiate, so effectively he wanted to have a separate peace with the Saxons, which was not uncommon at this time. Ferdinand was vaguely aware of all this, and he could agree on trying to get Saxony to open up negotiations in the imperial favor, but it was non-committal and not serious at this point, so he was still a bit suspicious of it. Arnim continued negotiations with the various German princes, which alarmed Gustavus, who forbid it, sending a letter to Johann George. 
Johann George continued to allow it, although it was much more secret than before. The pattern for Arnim at this point was he would sit around for a couple of months, and then when Johann George was in a position or needed an aggressive action, he would go on the attack, and then after that he'd go back into waiting for the order slash situation. Gustavus, however, could not call this out, as it would disrupt the image of Protestant unity. Brandenburg was a worry of his as they were a rival of Pomerania, and they also protected his backline bases because his army was more forward in trying to engage forces of the Imperials. So he couldn't push them on this because Brandenburg might take offense or they might do something about that, so they couldn't do anything. The Protestant cause was not nearly as unified as it seemed on the surface, and in my view, Gustavus was the main person keeping together from a charisma point of view, although he still did keep a bunch of people down through threat of force, so that should be taken into mind. Moving on to another ally, Hessen Castle was much more devoted to the Swedish cause due to their issues with Ferdinand. They were not a formal electorate, but they were the largest secular principality, so they backed the Swedish idea of reforming the imperial constitution, hoping that they'd be granted an electorate, which would give them much more influence in the political system. Wilhelm V, the leader of Hessen Castle, could field around 10,000 men, giving him decent ways and military ally as well. And to keep him on the Swedish side, he was promised territory in the Westphalian churchlands for giving up Marburg to Darmstadt. It was a good trade, however, it did have the unfortunate side effect of Wilhelm focusing on those lands over everything else, which meant he wasn't helping out the Swedes. Alliances can be fickle at times, and the fact that each ally he gained had their own ambitions did not make his job any easier. And going back to the issue that started this whole war, the Palatine, Gustavus treated it as a way to get British aid. It's been over a decade since the initial rebellion, so the situation had changed as Charles, the King of England, had less urge to reclaim the Palatine, and as he had his own heir at this point. He was also patching up his relationship with Spain, hoping it would help with the Palatine getting restored due to Spain supporting it. Charles' sister, however, pressed him to be more active and support the Swedes, fearing they would lose the opportunity if they didn't. So Charles did send troops, but only an expeditionary force to harass the Habsburgs, which were led by the inexperienced Marquis of Hamilton. They were technically sent as auxiliaries to back up Gustavus, and didn't require Gustavus committing to restoring Frederick V to the Palatinate. He supposedly sent 20,000 men, but it only turned into around 6,000 men who landed at Sutton in August, though the rumors distracted Tilly throughout 1631. Gustavus feared the troops might set up an independent Palatine, so he sent those troops to support the Swedes in the Gulas lands, and eventually they reduced around 500 men due to desertation, disease, and malnutrition. Gustavus clearly showed he wanted to maintain control over any troops in his sphere of influence, even if he wanted more British support, and he was more wanting support at his terms. It is interesting Gustavus was being picky about what he wanted his allies to do, and would even then move them away from a potential goal for them, which eventually resulted in the death of thousands of men, deserting and dying, like with Hamilton. But this force really wasn't anything serious, as it wasn't a declaration of war from Britain, so England was smart to not get involved in the war in the hindsight, but at the time it looked like a half-assed action. The last ally I want to talk about is the Dutch, who were supportive of the Swedish as they would reduce the chance of imperial support for the Spanish as they were caught up fighting the Swedes. They did agree to pay Swedes some subsidies, although they did not support the idea of being a religious war. They were doing it from a material, national point of view. The Swedes did have to drop a plan to monopolize the trade of grain in the Baltic to get that subsidy, so they had to give up something in return for that. However, they refused to back anything serious about the Palatine or Frederick, who had been in the country the last couple of years as a reminder for all of you guys. They did pay for him to join 
growing up with Gustavus, who welcomed him, as having Frederick there would stress out Maximilian due to the idea that Gustavus could put Frederick back in his old elector seat, which Maximilian had really wanted. Frederick, however, rejected the terms that Gustavus gave for said support, which was around 12,000 British soldiers and 25,000 pounds a month, on top of Frederick becoming a vassal of Sweden. He left angry at the king and made his way to Mainz, eventually dying on November 30th, which weakened the Palatine cause even further. While he was ineffective, it's still kind of sad to see the man who had such high ambitions for his own kingdom die as a man with no land or no property as he had lost all of it during the wars. So the man who had started all of this stuff, not technically, but as one of the major figures of the early part of the war, had died. It showed the war had changed since its initial rebellion, now becoming an international war involving actual other countries invading into the HRE. And for Gustavus, his success had now been hampered by the fact that he now had to balance alliances and couldn't be ever at once, meaning he had to rely on his allies to keep other parts of his new territory secure. The complexities of war were not fun and Gustavus was trying to deal with it, but he still was in a good position overall to strike out and attack the territory of the HRE and the Imperials. But that was just one part of the big picture, as we will continue on to more of the Swedish strategies and pieces next week. Thank you for listening in and I hope you're enjoying it. Social media links will be in the description or in the links themselves. You can email me at 3decot at gmail.com. Reminder, I have a Patreon and thank you to those who support me. Interview and spread the word. And I'll see you guys next time.